That was Phyllis Curtin singing the title role of Susanna, which was written by the acclaimed composer, librettist, and National Medal of Arts recipient, Carlisle Floyd. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Carlisle Floyd has created a distinctively American voice in opera, drawing on national folk and religious musical traditions. From Susanna, first performed in 1955, to Cold Sassy Tree, which debuted in the year 2000, Carlisle Floyd has consistently expanded the language of opera to tell American stories, exploring themes from the aftermath of the Civil War to the Great Depression to rural fundamentalism. And he's found enormous success both home and abroad. Passionate about arts education, Floyd, together with David Gockley, established the important opera studio in Houston, which for more than 30 years has helped train young artists in the full spectrum of opera. In 2008, he was honored by the NEA for his contributions to the arts in the United States when he was named to the inaugural class of the NEA Opera Honors. I spoke with Carlisle Floyd recently and began our conversation by asking him about his background in the rural South. I've been brought up in South Carolina in what they call the low country. My father being a minister, we moved to several different places during the time of my growing up. Did you come from a musical family? My mother was a, was a pianist, yes. I mean, she had been a piano major in college for a couple of years. She was the only so-called trained musician in the family. But my, I remember very much growing up and her family and my grandfather and her two sisters and her brother very much loved to get around the piano and sing in, you know, in uh, like a quartet. And I just took that for granted and sort of thought everybody's family did that. But I realize now in retrospect, it was something that was certainly musical. And my mother played. Now, I'm assuming you were given piano lessons as a kid. Yeah, I started piano lessons when I was about 10. Actually, I begged for them and started with my mother at the age of three. And then I found out that there was work involved. And so I quickly gave that up. <laughs> I wanted to play, but I didn't want to practice at the age of three. Then uh, around 10, I had been playing by ear for a while. And my sister was to start piano lessons. And my father, actually, I found this out in later life, my father actually insisted that I be given piano lessons as well. And once that got started, I went very quickly. This seems like a strange question, but when did you get serious about music? I don't think that's a strange question at all, because I was very fortunate. I had gifts in other of the arts. I started out, everybody assumed that I would be a painter, because I drew from the time I was about four. And I also, of course, wrote and uh, had been thinking of going into that when I went to college. So the choice of music, I was rather serious about it by my, I would say, mid-teens. But the thing that really propelled me into music permanently was winning a scholarship in piano to Converse College in South Carolina, which was the preeminent music school in that part of the country. And that set me on my course because my teacher there was 
Ernst Bacon, who, who was the dean of the school there, and then subsequently in two years became director of the school at Syracuse, and I went with him. And he was a very big influence on my early life, early musical life. Now, you began teaching before you began composing. Oh, You were yes. teaching at, at FSU. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I had considered myself really from the time I entered college. My, my career was to be as a solo pianist. And then I was taken on the faculty of, at, at uh, FSU when I was just barely 21. And they weren't quite sure what to do with me. <laughs> but uh, uh, they engaged me nonetheless on the recommendation of my teacher, Ernst Bacon, who apparently gave me a very strong recommendation so that it intrigued the dean here. And I had an interview with him. Uh, with the dean about the position, because this was in 1947, I guess it was. And uh, he asked me when I would be 21. And I told him, and he says, wonderful, that's four days before our summer school starts. And we cannot hire anybody because of state law who is under the age of 21 <laughs> and younger than the students. <laughs> so that's how I was initially employed. And it was very tentative. I was employed for six weeks in the summer, and then another six weeks, and then by the time of the fall, they kept me on the regular faculty, and I was given a very um, a curious title, which I think was made for my particular position, or invented, and that was assistant instructor. And of course, instructor is supposed to be the base level for any professor. But uh, then they were very good, and I went off and got a master's degree and came back, and I. I received an assistant professorship. So that's the way I began my life in academe and then also in music. What drew you to opera? That's a very good question and one I'm very frequently asked. And it's very hard to answer because I was never an opera fan. But I think in retrospect it was because it was the art form that combined all of those elements that I mentioned to you earlier that I was interested in along with music, of course, theater, writing. I've always felt that, I, that my abilities in drawing were, and painting were a very big assets to working with set designers and lighting people, especially when I got into directing my own operas and other people's operas as well. So I think just unconsciously, I was drawn to it, uh, but I kept the career going as a solo pianist until the production of Susanna in New York, and that changed everything. Well, let's talk about Susanna. It was your first great hit, and it's one of the most famous 20th century American operas. It's performed in repertory all the time. What drew you to the story of Susanna? A friend of mine who was an English major here at Florida State and who was a would-be writer and had, I think, an idea of doing the libretto himself, because I had done a couple of one-act operas. That was all I had done up until that point. And uh, he asked me, had I ever thought of updating the, the um, apocryphal story of Susanna and the Elders? And I had to confess that I really didn't know the story. I knew it had been a subject for uh, Renaissance paintings and things, things of that nature. So he outlined very briefly to me what the story was, which is pretty simple. And then I think my imagination immediately caught fire, and I began to see if, if I set it in the mountains of Tennessee, a rather remote, recessed place in a, in a community that was very much self-governed and not really open to the outside world, and this began to, one thing began to occur to me after the other. But the main thing is that uh, 
my response to it was to the story itself and to the inherent drama in this story, the story of a, of a young girl falsely accused and also against the background of a summer revival meeting, which, of course, certainly increased tension and which I, I, I tried to utilize very much in the libretto. So the, the actual going to the revival meeting scene of Susanna, which is the climax really of the second act, that became the tension builder for the entire opera, the revival meeting scene. Because, of course, without the revival, there would have been no Reverend Blitch, who was the itinerant evangelist conducting the revival, etc. And I had grown up attending those rural revival meetings when my father was a minister in, in small towns that had these adjacent community churches. And sometimes there were three or four during the summer. And, of course, growing up, my sister and I felt that it was a real burden to have to attend, but nonetheless, we did. But it was the, the very big social event for those very poor people who were all farmers. And this was, of course, during the height of the Depression. And uh, so I had that background very much in my mind as well. So I think you can see that a number of things began to spark as soon as I found out what the basic thrust of the story was. Now, Susanna had its premiere in Tallahassee. How did it move to New York, where it was presented by City Opera? It moved to New York through the absolutely tireless efforts of Phyllis Curtin, who had come to Tallahassee to do the premiere. She played the part of Susanna and originated it and was the Susanna for the first three or four years of the opera's life. But I had sought her out in Aspen. I had been a student in piano in Aspen earlier, and I did not know her. I just knew of her reputation, which was very stellar. She was the leading soprano at the City Opera at the time and did almost all the new premieres. And so I simply went to Aspen and called her and told her I had an opera I would like to show her and um, would she be willing to look at it. And to my delight and astonishment, she said, by all means, come over this afternoon. So it was really as simple as that. I went over to, uh, to her house because she was in Aspen as the uh, soprano on the staff, uh, performing and also teaching, very young, and had a wonderful career-making performance as Salome at the City Opera the uh, year before. And she told me when I met her that she felt a very strong affinity for Susanna because she had also been denounced <laughs> for doing the dance of the Seven Veils at the City Opera uh, in the pulpit in her hometown. So... Uh, she knew something about accusation. But in any case, she became a, a strong advocate really from the beginning for the opera and auditioned it for producers in New York. And as I said, she was tireless in this, and she not only sang the role of Susanna, she sang all the other roles as well if nobody was there to, uh, to do it. And it was Eric Leinsdorf who decided to produce it at City Opera in his one season there. Uh, and it was so it was it was open in uh, September of 1956 and the rest as they say I, I hope is history Carlisle were you prepared for the acclaim that that opera got oh no no um, and in one way I was because I had I had a very strong belief in the opera which certainly had been uh, strengthened by Phyllis's belief in it and also dedication to it but Looking back on it now, uh, I think it was a much bigger event than I surmised it to be at the time. 
but uh, I certainly enjoyed every moment of it. But well, I certainly didn't expect it to be around <laughs> 55 years later. And to be still as fresh 55 years later. That's the happiest part of it for me, yes. I remember my colleague and friend Ned Roram seeing it after about 20 years in New York at a city opera production, one more revival of it there, and he says, Carlisle, it's as fresh as it was when it was first done. And I loved hearing it described that way. Well, let's fast forward a bit to Of Mice and Men. It took you five years to write? I made a false start. I wrote the full libretto and about two-thirds of the music and then realized something was very wrong because it was beginning to assume the length of a Wagnerian opera. So on the advice of a stage director friend of mine, Tito Capobianca, he said, never look at the book again. You've, you've digested the book. Do your own Of Mice and Men. And so that's exactly what I did. I thought it was very good advice. And it uh, certainly made a permanent impression upon me of of the difference of playwriting and libretto writing, which I had thought I understood at that point. So I started out really just stripping it to its absolute essentials as a story. And that then thus became what you know, and certainly what I know, is is, uh, of mice and men now. Well, explain to us what the difference is between playwriting and libretto writing. (laughs) Twenty-five words or less, huh? Uh, (laughs) Of course, there are many similarities, but the the main difference is is that an opera, as much as possible, needs to be shown instead of told. It's all about action and emotion. I think the best way to describe it is don't, don't... pick any subject for a libretto for an opera that doesn't inherently have a crisis situation because it's the, it's not the everyday event it's the it's the unusual event and the event this that is pivotal in people's lives the, that's the seed and the basis of your action and of course very very strong emotional content because music put to to words that are that are fairly prosaic or banal just reveals the poverty of those words very, very quickly unless there's emotional content behind them. So all of those things have to be considered. I could go on for much, much longer. But the main thing is you, in a, a libretto, you have to strip everything to its essentials. That's almost the first requirement. Can the story be compressed into um, really a, what uh, we call in theater? and in opera, a spine. that does, And anything that doesn't feed directly into that spine just has to be discarded. And you certainly had to do that with All the King's Men, that you oh, yes. turned into the opera Willie Stark. Yes, but the difference was All the King's Men is a huge and complex novel, whereas uh, All of Mice and Men, of course, has 125 pages or something like that. And uh, I knew at the outset, and of course, after the experience of Mice and Men, I certainly knew that my task was ahead of me. How do I compress this enormously complex story with a just bevy of characters into something that one could put on the stage, a musical stage? And so I decided upon reducing it all to a 10-day period during Willie Stark's campaign to avoid impeachment. And that gave me my thrust into the story. 
Uh, of course, it meant combining characters in the novel. It meant eliminating a number of characters and, of course, endless number of scenes. But the thing that Robert Penn Warren said to me, I remember on opening night at the Kennedy Center and subsequent after that, he said, I know why you did what you did. And he meant, I approve of what you did. And, uh, of course, that was a very important endorsement and one that I very much cherished. But as I said, the complexity of that novel, which is, is really almost epic in its proportions, the red light went off right from the beginning. I just thought, how can I condense this and yet stay to the, to, to the basic theme of the story as I saw it? And so I, I have to say that I think I ended up doing 11 versions of the libretto of that. Let me ask you, do you start with the music? Do you start with the libretto? Oh, do, no. do both happen simultaneously? Oh, no. no the, the, they're completely different disciplines, and I start entirely with the libretto. Giancarlo Minotti started, he did it all simultaneously. I have no idea how he did it, because to me, the libretto is one thing, writing of the music is another. I spend usually now about 18 months on the libretto. And the music? Uh, curiously enough, about the same time, same amount of time. And, um, of course, the scoring is usually about three months. So, in other words, I've always insisted on the commissions uh, being for three years. Okay. Here's a question. You read a novel like Cold Sassy Tree, which is a charming, wonderful book. How do you look at this and say, aha, this can be an opera? Very good question, because I didn't see it. I mean, I was fascinated by the characters, this charming, warm, and moving southern tale of life at the beginning of the 20th century. And I first read it just recreationally because my sister had told me about it and had enjoyed it very much and suggested that I read it. She thought uh, that I would find it very enjoyable seeing such a faithful accounting of life in the South at that particular period. And I did. And I vaguely had the idea, well, maybe this could become an opera, but I really don't see how. And then I gave the book to my very dear friend and colleague, David Gockley, to read, who was general director of the Houston Opera at that time, and who would commission Willie Stark, among other operas from me, whose opinion I valued very highly. And also, he was um, from Philadelphia, so I knew that the terrain would be a little alien to him. But I wanted to find out if a person not brought up in that area of the country found the story too regional, or did they find it uh, the universality in it? Well, he loved the story from the beginning, kept it on his bedside table for reading, and started talking to me about doing an opera out of it. And I said, oh, no, I don't know that I can do that, because the novel, charming and delightful as it is, it's a series of episodes, not necessarily linked. So that it, uh, it, it had that just enormous challenge right from the beginning. Uh, and so I really took, it took three or four readings before I really began to, uh, to sort of vaguely see a, a way to make a spine out of all of this. It was the most uh, difficult material I've ever had to deal with because of that particular lack of a through line, as we call it. I came up with the idea of focusing everything on the relationship of um, the leading character, Rucker, 
uh, Lattimore in my version and his seamstress, whom he employed, a hat maker, Love Simpson, and the story of their relationship, which starts out simply as a marriage of convenience and develops into um, a genuine and marvelous love affair, and especially for him in a declining time of his life. It's an opera that I have a, a great and personal fondness for. Well, I think that's true for most of your audience as well. That opera has, again, it's, it's had a fantastic success and appeals to audiences Thank across goodness, the country. Yes. It's, it's had a remarkable success, yes. Opera in the United States certainly has undergone changes between the times of Susanna and Cold Sassy Tree. <laughs> to put it very mildly, yes. Can you talk about some of those changes? Well, I think what's happened in opera over the last 30 to 40 years, but certainly the last 30 years, is, is in a way, and I use the word advisedly, phenomenal. When my career began in the mid-50s, there were only three companies, opera companies, that have, could have launched a new opera. And the only one of those three that was even likely to do it was the New York City Opera, because the Metropolitan, of course, was strongly European in its, in its uh, traditions, and the San Francisco Opera was equally European. So there was simply no place for native opera at that time, except the New York City Opera. Nowadays, I could probably name you 30 opera companies who have the uh, necessary prestige to attract press, in national press for new for new operas. And I think a great deal of that growth has to do, frankly, with the introduction of supertitles. And nothing certainly has ever demystified an art form any faster than that. A number of us had grave reservations initially, but were quickly won over, because just seeing that the, the audience has followed it more intently and with greater involvement. So also, a new audience, not opera aficionados, but an, a new, and I think I always felt a waiting audience, was attracted to the opera house and, and new opera companies, certainly virgin um, all over the country. And so that we have now this very large non-traditional audience for opera, which I think is very, very exciting for me. Those are the people who come to opera with absolutely no predispositions. And I think the fact that we are doing so many new operas now every season is very much attributable to the fact that those people, uh, that audience, generally speaking, may be leery of a new opera, but not nearly so as, as our traditional opera audience. And they're usually willing to give it a, a, a try, and if it's in their own language, and if it's dealing with issues and people that they recognize, I think, all the better. I remember a woman coming up to me in, in Arizona, in Phoenix, after a production of, of Mice and Men, with this puzzled look on her face at the after-opera party, and she said to me, Mr. Floyd, she said, this is really real. <laughs> and I was amused and also enormously complimented. Well, you had said one of your goals one of your career goals was to expand the audience for opera. That and I is think certainly it's correct. Mm -hmm. Very fair to say you succeeded, more than succeeded in doing that. 
Well, that's one of the reasons I went into opera, which was an earlier question of yours. I had always had the feeling that if you could engage an audience dramatically as well as musically, uh, because we had this huge audience untapped in America that had been brought up on films and also theater. Simply, I knew too many well-educated people, and opera was not a part of their lives. They may go to the theater, they might certainly went to the best movies, but opera hadn't been a part of it. And I just knew, I felt that there had to be a very large untapped audience out there for opera that was presented with dramatic fidelity and with uh, singers who were wonderful actors. And that became the case with the American singers starting with the generation after World War II. It really revolutionized opera. And I think we see the results of that very much today. And I think that's part of the reason for the enormous growth of opera and opera companies in this country, or the American singers themselves. A great deal of credit has to go to them. Well, that has to have its parallel in the growth of music programs in colleges and universities across the country, like the one that you started with David Cockley at the University of Houston. Yes. Uh, And ours was one of the very first, I think probably the first to have a year-round program in which there was a course of study mapped out, a definite curriculum, which continues to be the case. You can find them at almost any opera company. I think it's very hard to find an opera company nowadays who doesn't have an apprentice program. At that time, what we knew best was the apprentice program in Santa Fe, which, of course, was simply a summer job for operas. And also, they were hired with the expectation that they would also serve in the chorus. So that when we began the Houston Opera Studio, I implored David, as a matter of fact, made it a condition, as far as I was going to be involved with it, that the singers not be choristers. And he squirmed, but he understood why I was making this provision, because I thought it added a great deal to the, um, the apprentices' regard of themselves, and also they did not feel that they were, in a sense, singing for their supper. And I think psychologically it was a a very big step forward. The NEA created an award for the first time in more than 25 years when it decided to honor lifetime achievement and individual excellence in the field of opera. That was 2008, and you were one of the original four honorees. What did receiving that award mean for you? Well, it was a tremendous honor, tremendous recognition. Number one, I've thought about it uh, since I knew that we were going to talk. It was one of the most memorable nights, certainly in my professional career, and there have been some memorable nights, I'm happy to say, because it was a reconnection with people I had known for decades. But as much as anything, I thought it was a tribute and also at the same time an acknowledgement of this phenomenal growth that we've seen in opera over the last 30 or 40 years. And it was making this public, it was honoring it publicly, and in a sense saying, we have arrived, that you, the opera-going public, has, has made this possible, and we would like you to share in these honors with us and these people who have contributed. 
So I, I felt, I must say, a warmth and generosity of spirit in the audience that night that, that believe me, I don't think I've ever encountered any other place. That was composer Carlisle Floyd, recipient of the 2008 NEA Opera Honors. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Excerpts from the opera, Susanna, Act One, Ain't It a Pretty Night, composed by Carlisle Floyd and performed by Phyllis Curtin. Use courtesy of VAI Music. Excerpt from Cold Sassy Tree, Sometimes the Pain of Missing Him, composed by Carlisle Floyd and performed by John McVeigh and the Houston Grand Opera use courtesy of Albany Records. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. Next week, author Amy Tan discusses the Joy Luck Club. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.